All right. Happy, happy Sabbath, everyone. So thankful to God to be here with you all. And I'm very grateful for, once again, our privilege and opportunity to study. Uh, let me know when we can get the screen up. <clears throat> we have ourselves a very nice study once again. And as we try to do every Friday evening uh, for our Vespers, we want to make our Friday evening Vespers something that is both beneficial to the Seventh-day Adventist as well as non-Seventh-day Adventist community because there's a lot that God has given to us as a movement that I firmly believe is a blessing to those who know it not. And so while we uh, want to enjoy it, uh, even if we are familiar with it, one thing I've learned about truth is no matter how much I hear it, I never get bored with it. So, you know, when it's truth, as it is in Jesus, I do not get bored with it. But I will tell you that uh, there's a whole lot of people out there that would love to know what God has put in his words and given us an understanding to give to those, once again, who know it not. So I'm very grateful to be here with us all this evening. We're going to go ahead and really get into a beautiful study as it relates to something God wants uh, to be made known in this world. And it's none other than his character. And so we're going to be building on that throughout this study. And you'll see that it will be successive, like, you know, the other Friday evenings, we'll be able to build on it. So why don't we go ahead and have a word of prayer? I'm going to kneel to do that. And uh, we're going to get started. And then after that, we can go into the word. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are very grateful, Lord, for the wonderful gift of life that you continually give to each and every one of us. We are thankful for the blessings that we have experienced all throughout this week. And Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity that on a Friday evening, when the great majority of the world is out preparing for parties and clubbing and bars and all sorts of places of revelry and amusement are going to be joined. But here you have a group of people that are taking time to spend it in prayer, to look to your words for wisdom, counsel and instruction. And Lord, we know that this is not an easy thing, especially to be seen amongst young adults. And so I praise you for everyone that is here, as well as those who are on their way. And Lord, I ask that you will grant heaven's choicest blessings to each and every one of us as we receive the word. And so abide with us now, Lord. Make your words plain to us, we ask. And thank you for hearing our prayer, for we do ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want to I give us a, a little picture here, so hopefully it's clear. Uh, Revelation 14 is a chapter in the Bible that's very relevant to all believers in the Bible. All believers in the Bible, because it gives a picture of something that I want us to see. Revelation 14, let's go there. In Revelation 14, I want us to notice what it says. And we're going to consider what very well may be, at least to many of us in this room, a familiar passage of Scripture. Revelation 14 we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, all right? Now, again, I would imagine that this is a very familiar passage to us, but it also may be uh, something we're not very familiar with, so that's why we go over it. In Revelation 14, starting at verse 6, John the Revelator is privileged to see an end-time vision. He says in verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the what? The hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. 
And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Pop quiz. What is different about these angels' messages? Outside of, obviously, the messages. What else is different that you notice with these angels? There's, there's something different from one angel versus the other two angels. Yes, Carrie. Excellent. Really good catch. Excellent catch. Did y'all catch that? Did you see that? This, on verse 7, it says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, right? And then if you look at verse 9, it says, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, etc., etc. But when you look at verse 8, it says, and there followed another angel, just what? Saying. So that was the difference, is that the second angel's message was not given with a loud voice like the other two messages. Now, the reason that this is important is because we're just taking a snapshot at end time prophecy. And what we're looking at is this is the last gospel message to go throughout all the world before Jesus comes. The proof of that is in verses 14 and 15. So let's take a look at that. In verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 14, we know that this message, these three angels, it's the last message of love, hope, and warning to be given to a dying world and an ailing church. And this message is what prepares the way for Jesus. How do we know that? Verses 14 and 15. What happens next? It says in verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having in his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, and, verse uh, 15, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap. For the what of the earth? Aha, the harvest of the earth is ripe. Question again. Do we agree that after the three angels' messages are given, it prepares the world for harvest time? Do we agree with that? Based off of the prophetic picture? All right. Well then, what does harvest time represent? What does harvest time represent? The end of the world. You said it with great confidence, Nathan. So tell me, where do we get in the Bible that the harvest time represents the end of the world, my brother? Okay. Harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. This is true. But there's a little bit more. Are you raising your hand, Elder? Yes. What do you have for us? Excellent. Let's go there. Matthew 13. <laughs> hey, Elder, Elder applied himself. It's all good. Elder applied himself. Praise the Lord. Matthew 13. 
right? Now look at 39. Now again, we're looking at harvest time from symbolic language, okay? So harvest time we know in the world of agriculture represents the ending of a growing process. When you're at the harvest time, you're ready to take and gather up the fruit and enjoy it and be blessed by it. Well, what does harvest time represent in the spiritual sense? Because that's what John the Revelator was talking about. Matthew 13, right there in verse 39. And keep in mind, this is the decoding of the symbolic language of the parable of the wheat and tares. So now Jesus is decoding. And here's what he says in Matthew 13 and verse 39. It says the enemy that sowed them is who? The devil. And then it says the harvest is the what? End of the world. And the reapers are the angels. And so harvest time represents the end of the world. So that's why we can teach with confidence. I enjoy doing this personally. I like talking to people of many different religious persuasions. And if they believe in the Bible, I love to go to them and say, hey, listen, did you know that the Bible lets us know what's the last message of the gospel, the last expression of God's love, hope, and warning for humanity, did you know that God actually told us what the last message will be before the world comes to an end? And they often will say, well, really, tell me. And then I take them right here to Revelation 14, and then after we read it, I'll say, which one of these three angels is your, is your church teaching? Are they teaching this first angel, this second, or this third? And then they'll often say, no, well, my church doesn't touch on any of this. It's like, okay, well, this is really important, as you can see, because this is the last message before Christ comes. Would you like to learn what these messages are about? And often the answer is yes. You know, one thing I have to admit, um, this is including California, but it's definitely true for New England. It's definitely true for Georgia and other places that I've lived, is I really I have not had struggle finding Bible studies. It's not a struggle. It's fairly easy. It's just like I said, you can just as, as long as you have sincere, genuine enthusiasm for what you believe, you don't have to be goofy and all like, hey, buddy, guess what? You, know, you don't have to do all of that. But you can just simply go to somebody and just say, hey, listen, you know, can I ask you a question? Do you read a Bible? And whether they say yes or no, you're prepared for conversation. Right. So even when they say, no, I don't. It's like, oh, wow. It's like most people out here. I notice read the Bible. What, what makes you different? Why is it that you don't like to read the Bible? And the next thing you know, they're just going to be like, well, you know, and then as they talk or whatever, you know what you're going to do. You're praying and you're listening. And as you're prayerfully listening, you go ahead and take whatever they're sharing. And you can say, OK, well, let me ask you this. What if there was a different picture and it was in the Bible and it's really accurate? It's like, would you think that an hour a day out of a week would be too much time for you? It's like, I'd like to go ahead and share that with you because I think it's really important. And you'll find that a lot of people are going to be open. Some will say no. And even if they say no, it's just like, OK, listen, do you mind if I ask you another question? Honestly, what makes you say no? I'm just curious because it seems like everybody's interested in spirituality and religion today. You're not interested. What, 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 do you, what makes you say no? I'm just curious. Maybe it'll be educational for me as a minister. When I talk to somebody else, I'll consider something that you can share with me. Well, you know, the last time I dealt with religious people, they're always so judgmental. Oh, hey, man, we have a rule in our Bible studies. We are a judgment free zone. So, you know, it, you, you see how you can take a lot of objections and turn it around very quickly. It's like this is something that can be done and it gets a lot easier over time and experience. But the bottom line is, is that this is the last message. No question about it. Now. 
The first message was with a loud voice. Third message was with a loud voice. The second message wasn't. But when you go to Revelation 18, we find a repetition from Revelation 14. So now let's go to Revelation 18. In Revelation, the 18th chapter, let's notice the, the repetition now. And uh, you really see that this is the last gospel expression. There's no more message after Revelation 18. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, all of them just deals with judgments and end events and, and, and closing up of the scenes. So Revelation 18 is the last like appeal to humanity. And in Revelation 18, let's go ahead and have a reader. If someone can read for us Revelation 18. And now let's go ahead and do verses one and two. Revelation 18 verses one and two. Go ahead, Nathan. Okay, so do we see a repetition of the second angel's message in Revelation 14, 8? Are we seeing a repetition of that? Do you see it? You tell me. I mean, you look. I don't want to persuade you. Please look at Revelation 14, 8, and then look at Revelation 18, 2, and tell me if you see a repetition. I see a repetition with more detail. Isn't that right? It's a repetition. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. It's, it's an absolute repetition of Revelation 14, 8. But now it's giving more detail because now it's saying something that Revelation 14, 8 did not say initially. Now it's saying Babylon has become the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So what that should show us from Revelation 14, 8 and Revelation 18, 2 is what? Talk to me. What's happening with Babylon? It's getting, it's getting worse. Very good. It's getting worse. Before, it just simply said, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But when you get to Revelation 18, it's still highlighting the making people drink of the wrath of the fornication and mingling with the merchants and the kings of the earth. But it's also talking about it has been, I mean, look at the language. It's become the hold of how many foul spirits? Every. And it says, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So there's a lot of bad things happening in Babylon. And that's why ultimately God says in verse four, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. God has his people inside of a place that has become the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What else do we notice about this message in Revelation 18? How is the message being given? How? With a loud voice. Did you notice that? It said right there in verse 2, and he cried mightily with a strong voice. So now there's a loud cry that's being given in Revelation 18. Now, what's the number one way? Here we go. This is where we get to the crux of our study for tonight. What is the number one way that this loud cry is being given? 
You tell me. Look at the verse. What's the number one way that this loud cry is being given? It's definitely saying something for sure. I mean, it's, it's telling people Babylon, come out of her, etc. So there's a message for sure. But I'm asking, what's the number one way, the chief way that this loud cry is being given in Revelation 18? Yes, Nathan. Okay, the principles of the world becoming more and more corrupt. Very good. Uh, Hasive? Yeah, how is it giving this loud cry? Well, I want you to see. I, I'm, I'm asking you. I want you to look at Revelation 18. We read 1, 2. We quoted verse 4. And I'm asking, what is the chief way that this loud cry is being given? Shaban. Very good. That's exactly right. You see, you got to learn family. When we, when we, remember, I told you in a couple of weeks we're going to start our how to study the Bible classes. You got to look at the text and always remember that scripture is the key that unlocks scripture. The way the verse answers the question is it says it lights up the earth with God's glory. This is the chief way it's going to expose the sins of Babylon is by lighting the earth up with the glory of God. Was that what you were going to say, uh, Adrian? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Amen. <laughs> I was actually going to say, like, it's, it's, like, it's built to the point of, like, no return. Like, it seems like there's no going back. That's a fact. That's a fact. But, you know, there used to be an old program. Now, I'm old enough to remember this. I think, Adrian, you should be with me on this, brother. You know? Um, but those of you, come on, man, don't abandon me. <laughs> now, listen, there used to be a commercial on television. It was a commercial that became the joke of jokes. And it was an old lady who fell down. Now, she didn't really fall, okay? But it was an old lady who fell. Adrian, what did the old lady say when she fell? Thank you. Very good. See, I knew that. The older generation, we remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you remember that? <laughs> okay. I don't think they made an updated commercial on that. Oh, they probably did. <laughs> but the young, the, the lady, the older lady, she would. I mean, it became like the biggest. I mean, for real, because it, it was like she was like a a grumpy kind of older woman, and she just falls down, and she hits like a button or something. She's like, "I've fallen, and I can't get up." And then people just took that whole thing and made like all sorts of jokes out of it and everything. But what was the reality is that there was a fall and the fall was so hard that it caused the person to not be able to get up again. And this is the condition of Babylon. Babylon is something that cannot be revived. The only thing to do is what God said, come out. But what's going to make the people want to come out? They are going to behold the glory of God in the angel. That angel, the messengers of God, that's you and that's me. More than hearing our great arguments and standards for the truth, that angel is going to have so much power because God gave something to that angel that is very, very hard to argue against. We can always argue doctrine. It's difficult to argue character. Amen. You can often argue doctrine, 
you can agree to disagree. You can say, well, you're not really looking at it right. And we can talk all sorts of, you know, theological jargon. But it's very hard to argue against a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. It's hard to argue against that. And this is what the Bible presents as the last day message and the last day effort of how God is going to make the world know who he is. He's going to use people like you and people like me that he is going to ignite us, if you will, with light to the point that we are going to light up the earth with the glory of God. Now, here's the question. What is the glory of God? And please understand that, you know, once you give me the answer, I hope you know what I'm going to ask you next. I'm going to ask you where you get that from. So just before you give your answer, just think it through. What, what is the glory of God? Exodus 33. Exodus 33. <laughs> okay, let's turn to Exodus 33. Siobhan looks, sounds like he has a lot of confidence. So let's go to Exodus 33. We want to find out what the glory of God is, because, again, this is this is how God is going to finish his work through humanity. He's going to use you, use me to light up the earth with his glory. So let's go ahead and let's talk about what glory is in Exodus 33. What verses are we looking at? Sorry. It, OK, is it verse 18? <laughs> All right. So verse 18, Exodus 33, verse 18. Somebody read it for us. Amen. Show me thy glory. So what does Moses want to see? He wants to see God's glory. Now, do we have another verse? Aha, verse 19. Let's look at verse 19. This is God answering Moses. What does God say in verse 19? Somebody go ahead and read that. Okay, so why did you choose to read verses 18 and 19 of Exodus 33? We're talking about what does glory mean. You're directing me to Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Why'd you do that? Because somebody's going to ask you that. They're going to be like, why'd you take me here? I want to know what God's glory is. You took me to Moses and God having a conversation. Well, we can go to 34, but my question still stands on why did we just read Exodus 33, 18 and 19? Because Moses has a request and God grants him that request. Okay. Why does see God's glory in this context? Shows him his glory. Okay. Want to see God's glory? God did not show him his glory in Exodus 33. Did he? He did? Huh? I mean, just talk to me. You know, again, I want to know what the glory of God is. You told me to go to Exodus 33, 18 and 19. I went there and I read Moses saying, Lord, show me your glory. And then I heard God say, I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name. I'm not sure if that's explaining what the glory of God is. You know, so help me out. Show him what? Who he is. All right, verse what? 
Verse, okay, what does verse 22 say, Margaret? Okay, all right. So, family, okay, let me help you out. Let me help you out. And, and the reason why I want to do this is because I want you to imagine you're sitting with somebody that doesn't know what you know, right? When you're sitting with someone that does not know what you know, you want to kind of give the verses to them in a way that's comprehensible, that they can understand why you took them there. So, we started in Revelation 18. We saw that God is clearly going to do this amazing last effort to convince the world of his love and grace and power. This last effort that God is going to make is he's going to use people like you, like me, and he's going to light up the earth with his glory. This is how he's going to convince people they need to come out of Babylon and join with God. Now, I asked the question then, well, what is the glory of God? The answer was Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19 and 22. And when we went to Exodus 33, 18, we read Moses going to God and saying, I beseech thee, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, show me your glory. God responds, I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name. And then he says, I'm going to let my glory pass you as you are going to be hidden in the rock. So why did we use Exodus 33, 18, 19, and 22? Because it helps us. All right. Here's a point that I think is very important, because thus far, we don't have the glory of God yet revealed. What we have is God and Moses talking about his glory, but we haven't seen the glory yet. Right. OK, Adrian. So here's the point. In verse 18, God says, Moses says, show me your glory. Verse 19, God says, I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name. The first lesson we learn is the goodness of God, the name of God, and the glory of God are all the same thing. Are you following that? That's an important lesson. When you're teaching somebody, that's an important lesson. Is help them see, it, 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 the easiest way I can do it, I go to Adrian and I say, Adrian, please show me your car. Adrian responds, no problem, I'll show you my Honda. Did we use the same verbiage? Did we use the same verbiage? No. But are we talking about the same thing? Yes. Are you following that? I said, show me your car. He says, I'll show you my Honda. But we're talking about the same thing. That's exactly what happened in Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19. We want to know what the glory of God is. So we're going to an Old Testament story where Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. God says, no problem. I'll show you my goodness and proclaim my name. So the goodness of God, the name of God, and the glory of God are the same thing. It's synonymous. Now, he tells Moses, now Moses, get ready. I'm going to let my glory pass by before you. So here it is that the glory of God passes by. Now let's go to Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Now we're about to see that glory of God pass by Moses. All right. 
So now someone go ahead and read for us Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. So according to those verses, what did God proclaim? His name. name. But what do we learn about the name? The name is synonymous to his what? His glory. Isn't that right? Remember Exodus 33, 18 and 19. His name is synonymous with glory. So when he proclaimed his name, he was also revealing his glory. And what did he reveal? What did he reveal? When he revealed merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, etc. What was God revealing? He was revealing his character. And so according to the Bible, the glory of God is his character. That's why the first angel's message says, fear God and give glory to him. That's what God wants in these last days in earth's history. He wants to have a people that reflect his character. This is what the world needs more than anything else. The world does not need a whole bunch of people that know how to beat every argument. Follow that? God is not, raised, not, God is not merely raising up a people that knows how to beat every argument. This is a true story. I remember when uh, 20 years old. And I heard all these amazing truths, right? All these amazing truths that many of us believe today. And you know what I did? There was a subway in Queens, New York called Parsons and Archer Subway. And uh, I remember I used to go to that subway. And it was like a religious Mecca. I mean, like you just had Muslims. You had Hebrew Israelites. You had Pentecostal, Baptist. You had like all these different religious persuasions around. And every time you tried to just simply make your way to the subway, somebody was going to stop you and ask you something. They were going to try to challenge you or whatever. And I remember one time this guy got me, right? And he was just like, um, I, yeah, I remember I was walking to the subway and the brother just said, hey, my brother. And I tried to ignore him, you know, because I knew like if I answer him, he's just going to pull me in. So, you know, he was like, hey, my brother. So I was like, no, nope, not answering. And then he was like, did God create evil? And I was like, now that's a dumb question. You know, so I looked back and I said, no. And then he said, oh, yeah. And he took me to Isaiah. And he took me to a text in Isaiah where God says, I create evil. And I was like, you know, I was like, oh, wow. I never read that before. So when he showed that to me, I was like, oh, man. He said, See, my brother, he said, you don't understand. That's why this Bible's corrupt. And, he, you know, he's trying to, you know, try to, uh, you know, he, he did all of that just to attack the Bible and get me to follow his religion. So now I'm studying. And this is true. I'm just letting you know this is true. I studied my brains out when I joined this church. It's 30 years ago, 20 years old. And I was very excited. And I was like, man, I'm learning high school dropout, you know, living a totally unhealthy lifestyle, everything. I never thought my mind could comprehend stuff. And now when I started reading the Bible, it was like, it started making sense to me, right? So before you know it, I'd get off the bus and I'm like, okay, the 490 year prophecy. 
Where do we find that? Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. Okay, when did it begin? 457 BC. How do you know that? Because it said at the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Ezra chapter 1, that was only restore. If you go to Ezra chapter uh, 4, that's only rebuild. But it's only in Ezra 6. That's when you find a, a restoration and rebuilding where the Jewish nation had full autonomy. Now, I'm actually doing this before Bluetooth. Before the Bluetooth headsets, and I'm talking to myself walking home from the bus stop. And so a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy, but I could care less because I was very, very excited because I was like, I cannot believe my brain can know stuff. You know, it's like, I was, seriously, I was very, very amazed by this. So now that I'm understanding all these things, I remember I said, you know what? I've been studying a lot. And I've learned some things here. It's time to go to the subway. And I remember walking through the subway. Normally, in New York, everybody walks like this. You know, everybody's, you know, we're trying to hurry up and get to where we got to go. But this time around, I got my Bible out. It's almost like I was walking. I wanted everybody to see. Here's a religious guy. I'm intriguing them to ask me questions. So I'm walking with my Bible out, and I'm walking very slow. And the guy comes to me. Hey, my brother. And I was like, Yes. And he's just like, can I ask you a question? I was like, ask away. And when he tried to trip me up with all of his Bible arguments, I was like, well, let's see what the text says. And I and I remember it was like my Bible became a sword and I became a ninja. And I was just like, and I, I was slicing people up with the word of God. I mean, it felt fantastic. I mean, I was beating people down with the word. I was like, man, I'm going to beat all of y'all with the word of God. And that's exactly what I did. And so I remember I took my Bible. After a great beat down day, no one could overcome my arguments. And I overcame everybody else's arguments. And I remember I came home. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, showed every single one of them, proved them all wrong. And the sweet voice of God's spirit said, so where are all the souls that you've won to me with all of your arguments? And it was like that was the first time I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> the goal was not just to win arguments. The goal was to win souls. You understand that? I got a lot of people mad. Oh, I promise you, I got a lot of people mad. I, I, I became a debating Christian. I, I, I enjoy debate. I love debate. It made me train my mind. And, and I mean, I dug deep. I'm serious. I really, really applied myself when I, when I joined this movement. I, I mean, I studied hard. I never studied anything like this. I skipped school, skipped classes, everything. I never took education seriously. The Bible was like the first book I started to take seriously. And so God was helping me to understand, Dwayne, it's more than winning arguments. It's way more than just proving you're right and they are wrong. It's about winning people to my heart. And it's going to take more. Now, please understand, I taught correct doctrine. But God knew that my character was not winsome. And that's when the next phase of the journey of my life began about learning how to be an actual Christian in my heart. You see, God is not going to call people out of Babylon merely by just giving a lot of winning arguments, proving that you're Babylon and we're the remnant, proving you're wrong and we're right. 
the way that the people are going to leave Babylon, which they should leave, any place that's the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird, of course we should want to get people out of, out of a place like that. But the way that it works is God says, first, I need to have an audience with you and I need to fill you with my light. And so you can now light up the earth with my glory. Let the people see who I am. And I dare to say, this is still largely future. Revelation 18 is still largely future. It's not happening right now as much as we think. And the reason why is because God's people were still kind of struggling when it comes to revealing that beautiful, blessed character of God. I want to be able to have the impact on people like the apostles did. You remember when the apostles were around others and, and people would say, we have noticed that these men, have, these, these men must have been with Jesus. Can you imagine that our characters and, and our demeanor and our presentation of ourselves is of such an impact that people would say, you, you, you must be a Christian. You must be a Christian. Just the way that you, you talk, you act. You know, you remember that when, when, when they were ready to incriminate Peter, and that's, that's why we know, according to the Bible, that cursing and swearing has to be a really bad thing. Because when Peter broke away from Jesus and was kind of on his own, you'll remember that the Bible says, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Christ? He was like, nope. And then they was like, nah, nah, you're one of the followers of Christ. And he was like, nope, not me. And then they literally said, you know what? We know you're a follower of Christ. And they said, the reason why we know is they said your speech. They said, you actually talk like a Christian. So Peter wanted to prove that he was not a follower of Christ. And the Bible says he began to curse and to swear. Every time we allow our mouths to curse and to swear, we testify that we are disconnected from God. Isn't that deep? That's something to think about the next time somebody crosses us on that I-80. You know, that's the next, that, that makes us want to think a little bit, Lord, help me be mindful of my words or even our thoughts, because, you know, we can go here too, right? The glory of God. This is the focus of God. I want people to reflect my character. This is what the world needs more than anything else. And this is what we'll spend a few moments talking about, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, is that I cannot, you cannot reflect the character of Dwayne without knowing Dwayne. I cannot reflect the character of RJ without knowing RJ. And we cannot reflect each other's characters unless we first know the person. And there's no way that we're going to reflect the character of God if we do not know God. And so this is what God wants more than anything else. You'll remember that it was in John 3, 14 through 16, that the Bible says it like this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. According to the verse, what is it that God wants us to have? He wants us to have everlasting life. I mean, this is his wish. This is his desire. This is his great, great burden for you and for me, is he wants us to have everlasting life because he already knows this life is fleeting. This life is very temporary. This life is here today, gone tomorrow. This life is something that is very unpredictable. And God knows that because we live in a world filled with sin. 
People die today and it doesn't even have to make sense. It still happened. And so as a result of that, what's important to God more than anything else is do you have eternal life? I realize that this is my prayer for my children more than anything else. I mean, I, I, want, I want a greater communion uh, with my children uh, while we are alive and have a chance. But more than anything, I'm like, Lord, I pray that eternal life is theirs. And that's what I'm praying for more than anything else is that they have found the key to eternal life. Because I, every time I leave my house and come back home, family, that's a miracle. Every time. One time I'm driving down I-80, and I'm serious. As I'm driving down I-80, for some reason, I believe it's the Spirit of God, I never drive without praying. I always pray before I leave. And I ask God, surround the car with angels, Lord. Guide me in my you know, driving, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't believe I pray, I don't pray vain words. I mean every bit of what I'm saying. And I believe that's one of the reasons why I go places and get back in safety. Now, check it out. I was driving on the highway. I asked God to guide me. And when I was on the road, there was this person. I don't know if it was a man or a woman. But the person was kind of like on this side of the highway. I'm all the way on the fast lane. But I see them coming across. And they're just kind of like, and they're just switching over. So I'm like, all right, I got my eyes on you. And for some reason, it was like, keep your eyes on that person. And so I'm driving, and as I'm getting ready to pass the person, I notice the person kind of goes like that, like a quick little look. And the next thing you know, they start coming in the lane. And I'm like, surely they see me coming. And I had to go ahead and hit my car because they were about to hit me. And as they're about to hit me, I'm like, beep, beep. And then the person goes, and goes this way. And I could see in the rear view mirror, bam, they hit the car spins around, bam, hits the car again, and then you see the car just coast, and boom, hits a tree. I called my wife, I said, honey, um, I just saw a very terrible accident, what do I need to do? <laughs> you know, and it's serious, I just, I don't know, I, my mind was a little frazzled on what I saw. And she was like, you need to get off the phone with me, and <laughs> you need to call 911. And I was like, you're right. So then literally, it's, it's like, can you imagine? I mean, I forgot. So literally, I called 911, and I said, listen, there's an accident that just happened, et cetera, and they jumped on it. And I thought to myself, I said, just like that. Just like that. That's how easy somebody could lose their life. And I thought to myself, Lord, I understand why eternal life is your focus. Does God want us to have a good life here on this earth? Sure he does. He wants us to have life and have it in more abundance. But more than anything, God says, I want you to make it a priority that eternal life is your focus. Because this life is fleeting. Every day is a miracle. We need to make sure that should my day come, I want to make sure that eternal life is mine. Now, watch this. Why is eternal life so important to God? Well, remember this too. In Isaiah 40 in verse 28, right? I see that. Can you read that for us? So God wants us to have eternal life. And one of the reasons he wants to is because he's the eternal, everlasting God. He wants to be with you and I forever. God is not interested in the temporary relationship. As life can be eternal, God is eternal. And he says, I want to be with you for eternity. God wants to be with us forever. 
And one of the great reasons he wants us to have eternal life is because he knows that those who have it, they will never, ever separate from me ever again. The reason why this is so important, beloved, is because in John 17 and verse 3, we find out how to get eternal life. God wants us to have it. He is eternal. He wants us to have eternal life. And how do we get it? And John 17 and verse 3 spells it out. It says, and this is life eternal, that they might what? Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So God makes it very clear that eternal life comes from knowing him. Now, please understand, when it says know, what do you think that word know means? When he says that they might know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What does that mean? Intimacy, okay. Intimacy, like Adam knew Eve. You know, Adam, Adam had sexual interaction with Eve. God doesn't want us to have sexual interaction with him. But what, so in other words, what, what, when we say intimacy like Adam knew Eve, break that down a little bit. Like when God says he wants us to know him, what is that talking about? Experience his character. I think that's a really good one. Very good. Anything else? God wanting us to know him. What does he mean by that? Yes. Experience his presence. Somebody again says, what do you mean? What do you mean experience his presence? What does that mean? Am I going to feel something? Like, what does that mean? You know? Okay. So reflect him. Okay. Very good. All right. So it kind of sounds like reflecting him. You know, you understand him, and then it empowers you to reflect him. All right. How about this? Look at the word no. This is the word no that we just read in John 17 and verse 3. It says it means to know absolutely. It says to be resolved. And I want you to notice that. To be resolved to be sure. Why is that important to God? Without faith All right. Very good. Anything else? Why does God want us to be resolved? Why does he want us to be sure about who he is? Seems like this must be the last work of Satan. You know, we talk so much about the last work of God. I think the last work of Satan is to get people to not know who God is so we won't be sure that we won't be resolved. Hasive. I think the, the original issue was trust. I think trusting God. So, uh, you know, I think being sure of the character of God is an important to trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. Family, I'm just here to tell you this. Okay, so I'm not sure if you're aware of this, right? The Bible, in all honesty, through faithful study, if we are truly living in the last days of Earth's history, and if we are faithful to all the counsels of God, we have many trials to look forward to in this life. Many. If we really are going to be about our Father's business, trust Him, live for Him, and honor Him with our whole lives, we have many trials 
that we will face in this life. As a result of that, it is imperative that you and I are resolved in who God really is. Because there's always going to be a voice that is going to try to misrepresent the character of God to yours and my mind and cause us to have lack of faith. Can I show you in Luke 18? Go to Luke 18. Look at what Jesus said. This is a prophecy, actually. Luke 18. And it says it right here. This is going to be the great crisis in the end of time. Luke 18, verse 8. It's a powerful parable, but we're just reading the conclusion of it. When the Son of Man comes, what did Jesus say he's going to struggle finding? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So most people going to church do not trust God. And we don't trust God because we don't know him. Look at the subject of surrender. Surrendering to God means, Lord, you are in charge of every area of my life. Whatever you tell me to do and whatever you tell me to not do, by your grace, I will do. Whatever you tell me to, to give up. Imagine some of you guys, that special lady in your life, and God says, she's not the one. Imagine God telling you that. Do you have such a trusting relationship with God that you would say, Thy will be done and make that very hard phone call or have that very hard visit. Ladies, can you imagine God saying to you, he's not the one. And then here it is. You got to go ahead and make that decision. Imagine you're deep into your career, college, invested money, everything. And God says, I have a completely different calling for your life. Imagine the things that you enjoy to watch, play, visit, do, friends in your life, whatever it may be. And God says, there's something I know about this person that you don't know. I need you to create more distance between you and them. What I'm saying is, is that surrender in the Bible is where the greatest blessings comes to humanity, but it does come at a cost. And a lot of times, we don't necessarily find people whose lives are completely and absolutely surrendered to God. And as a result of that, we're in the trials and troubles that we're in right now. And so what God is saying is, is that where does this come from? Why do we lack so much faith? It's because we don't know. Him. It's easy to trust somebody you know, isn't that right? If I really know you and if I really love you, it's not that hard for me to sacrifice for you. You see, Jesus knows us intimately. He loves us eternally. Therefore, he sacrificed himself fully for us. Isn't that something? Oh, hallelujah. I mean, hallelujah. He knows us intimately. He loves us with an everlasting love. And that's why he was able to sacrifice himself fully for us. That's what I love about Jesus. The number one thing that attracts me to Christ is he always teaches by example. He never asks us to do something that he himself did not do first. That's an excellent teacher. And so here it is. God is saying, listen, I want you to know who I am. Go to Hebrews 11. Let's look at let's let's read the verse slowly. Hebrews 11, verse six. We'll read it nice and slow. Hebrews 11, verse six. 
You'll see in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, this, this, is, what always God's, this, this is what God's plan always was. It says in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that what? What's the next two words? That he is. What's the word after is? What's the word after is? And. So that means that in addition to who he is, he wants us to know also that he's a reward of them that diligently seeks him. So what is God trying to say? God says, I want you to know who I am. Do we really know who he is? I'm just saying, I think some of the problems we face in our lives are directly connected to our lack of surrender and submission. And our lack of surrender and submission to Christ comes because of a lack of really knowing him for who he is. It's not hard to submit to God when we have a clear picture of who he is. Because knowing God produces love for God. And the more you love God, you'll do whatever he says. When you really love him, when I really love him. It's like, we'll do whatever he says. All right? And so it is that, you know, this theme is actually in Scripture, right? Can somebody read that for us? What, is, what does 1 John 5.20 say? This idea of knowing God. Who can read that for us? What do we see connected in the verse? Something, something that's thematic, what we've been studying thus far. What's connected in the verse? Knowing God and eternal life. Did you see that? See how John understood that? Knowing God, eternal life. Not just John, Paul. Look at what Paul says here, right? But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Once again, knowing God, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Knowing God and eternal life. This is the most important thing. I'm going to give you a few more verses, and then let's see if we can do an exercise. Charles Spurgeon, all right? Charles Spurgeon said the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. This is the highest attainment that a human being, a child of God, can have. John Calvin said it like this, there is no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. All knowledge points us back to God. 
Then Ellen White made a powerful statement. She said, when we know God, as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ and through communion with God, sin, thank the Lord, will actually become hateful to us. So, I mean, you know, all of these statements about the importance of knowing God. And there is a sad reality in all of this because in Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah's thoughts were these. And it's powerful how this was an Old Testament teaching, right? Jeremiah said it like this. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So, I mean, like, God is literally giving us permission to boast. He just says, don't boast in how much money you got. Don't boast in how rich you are. Don't boast in how strong you are. And don't boast in how smart you are. God says, if you want to boast, boast in the fact that you understand and that you know exactly who I am. Then he goes on. Oh, I'm going to bring up verse 24 in a second. Now, this is something that I thought was very deep. And this is what it says here. John 8, 44 and verse 19. Jesus told the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, the lust of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. I always wondered what made the people children of the devil. Why? How did they become children of the devil? And verse 19 helps us understand because verse 19 says, Then said they unto him, where is thy father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Their lack of knowing and understanding God made them perfect candidates for becoming children of Satan. So knowing God is an eternal thing. It's something that should be our life work. I kind of marvel at it, and you should marvel with me. Isn't it crazy how we've been like religionists for all these years? There's some of us who've been going to church for a long time. And it's almost like if we're, if, we're really, if we're really willing to sit down and think about it, we're kind of sometimes serving a God we really don't know and understand. And granted, we can't understand everything about God. I mean, that, that's for sure. But he's revealed more than enough that we can be convinced. He's revealed more than enough that we can say, you are who you say you are. And especially in this past five year journey with me and the Lord, it's like all he's doing. And I was talking to God about it because I did my favorite activity again, walking and talking to God in nature. And when I was talking to the Lord yesterday in nature, I was was just kind of like. It's like, you know, we're not convinced yet. You know, he sees us singing, he sees us praying, he sees us sitting across from people and studying the word of God with them. It's not how great we are during the the bright times of our lives. The question is, how are you during those really, really dark moments? How are you during those very, very dark moments? Are we now doubting him? Are we now questioning him? Are we now accusing him? And like me, when I began to accuse God and, you know, when I had a very dark period, In 2016, the darkest period of my life, hands down, darkest period of my life was the year of 2016. I lost my mind. And when I went through that dark period, I remember cursing God. I mean, I was so mad at him. Lord, I do this for you. I do that for you and all these other things. And this is what you give me in return. 
And I began to just blaspheme his name. And I remember God bringing it very clear to my heart. Dwayne, the only reason that's coming out of your mouth is because it was already in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The only reason it came out of you is because it was already in you. And that's true for every single one of us. And it was like ever since 2016, all God has been doing with me is he's literally saying, I'm going to introduce you to who I am all over again. I'm going to get you to get to know me. You don't know me as it is your privilege to know me, but you're going to get to know me. And I'm doing so much better, so much better. But it's not complete yet. It's not complete yet. It's like God knows. He knows like, yes, you're definitely better than five years ago. But God is like, but you're not convinced yet. And he's still convincing me of his grace and his power and his love. And he's still convincing you, too. And the reality is, beloved, is that there's a lot at stake when it comes to knowing God and understanding God. So I want to do an exercise with you. I want us to go to the book of John chapter 5. And uh, I want us to go ahead and do an exercise here. John 5. And um, you'll remember in John 5... Right there in verse 39, Jesus made a statement. And I have learned how to do this now. I know how to do this well. I can teach anybody how to do this. But there was a time I didn't know how to do this. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which do what? Testify of me. Okay. Now, what do you think is the number one thing God wants to reveal about himself in Scripture? His glory, which is his? His character. Okay, so what happens is when you read a story in the Bible, and keep in mind, when Jesus said, search the Scriptures, you know there was no New Testament, right? Right? There was no New Testament yet. So that means that the Old Testament reveals Christ. Yeah? All right, good. So... What I wanted to know, and I wanted us to do an exercise. Here's the exercise. I want us to consider the story of the flood. What did you learn about God's character in that story? Hasive. Oh, it makes perfect sense. As a matter of fact, Elder, is it easy to get these mics on? Do you know how to do that back there? Yeah? yeah? All right. Can I just, uh, let me take this one. Oh, yeah, it works perfectly. Do you mind repeating that, Hasibe? All right. Again, the story of the flood. What do we learn about the character of Christ in that story? Um, personally, what I learned is reading the story um, that Noah, he preached for so long the word of God. 
that he gave so much time for the people to come to the to the ark that's how much grace and how much like um like like patience yeah like long suffering how much like god is waiting for us to come to him he's just like giving us this this long time for for him or for us to come to him okay hold on to the mic now now i'm gonna put you on the spot okay so you just explained how the story of noah and the flood reveals this incredible long-suffering mercy and grace of god to people who absolutely did not deserve it mm -hmm. is that right yes okay according to revelation 18 the earth is going to be lit up with the character of god so that means that whatever you see in the character of god in the story of the old testament god wants you to do more than just see it he wants you to reflect it so now how can you take the same lesson you just got from Noah, how can you now apply that to modern day scenarios that people like you and I deal with every day? How does the story of Noah teach us how to reflect the character of God in our interactions with people wholly undeserving of mercy, wholly undeserving of grace? What is God teaching us? Could you share with us? Yeah, <laughs> I work at a clinic. I work with angry patients. I have to tell them to still wear a mask and they don't want to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So there has been a patient. One time I can share a story. Patient comes in. I tell him to wear a mask. He gets really upset. He says, I'm not going to wear a mask. He starts hitting the counter. I stand up and I say, please go outside. I'm not we're not going to deal with this. Mm -hmm. And then he goes outside and he calms down. But I try to do it in the most loving way by just, you know, not saying things back to him or not, you know, just, you know, at the end, I just prayed and I hope that he understands. But just like being patient and being kind at work mm. when there's people that are not doing well. You okay. Know, it's a clinic. They're mentally not doing well. You know, their health is not good. So you need to understand that they're going through stuff and it's not me, it's them. But, you know, having that patience as God has, that's what I should have at work. Amen. Very good. Okay, two more. We read earlier Exodus 34, 5 through 7. That's the story when God was in the mountain and put Moses in the cleft of the rock. And then God said, he proclaimed his name and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will not, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Question. What did you see about that revelation of God's character that can be applied in how we interact with other people? Anyone? In Exodus 34, 5 through 7, you can turn there if you need a refresher. And it clearly says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. What of that revelation of God's character can we apply in our day-to-day -day interaction with other people? What would you say? Nathan? Go ahead, you can give him the mic. 
the most of the things that God was saying or Jesus was saying, the Lord, the Lord merciful, long-suffering, all of that is patience and mercy and long-suffering. So a way you can apply that is, let's say you have a good friend you want to witness to, but they're not interested in the Bible or anything. No matter what you say or what you do, they're just not interested. How do you apply that? You continue praying for them. You continue being their friend. You continue treating them the way Jesus would treat them, no matter how they treat you. Same goes with the people you meet on the street or the people you meet in traffic. You maintain patience, you maintain mercy, and you maintain kindness, quick to forgive, things along those lines. Okay. Much appreciated. However, there's more in that verse, isn't there? Is it not the seventh quality of God's character that he says, I will by no means clear the guilty and visit their iniquities? That's visit their iniquities with judgment. In other words, let me ask you a question. If a person gets angry with another person, does that mean that they are not being Christian? Are you sure? I want y'all to think, family. Seriously, please think. Are you sure? Is, is a person getting angry with another person? Because they're angry with the other person, does that mean that they are not being Christian? Okay, break that down for us. We could be angry with the things they do without being angry with the person. That somebody says that sounds impossible. <laughs> well, I think that's what I think God's wrath is directed at sin, you know, and I think uh but he loves all of us as his children. So I don't think I think he can separate out the things that we do from the things from who we are. You know? So give, give us an example of that, right? Because remember, the twofold thing we're looking for is every time we study scripture, first we want to understand the character qualities of God. Then after we understand the character qualities of God, then we want to say, okay, Lord, how do I take that and apply it in my day-to-day -day experience with others? Because you want me to reflect this character. So now, how do I reflect this character of Exodus 34, 5 through 7? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting their iniquities as well. Yeah. How do we take that and apply that in human interaction? I guess that's uh, kind of what my mom used to say to me when she would discipline me, you know. Ah. She would often say, you know, I'm angry. I'm not angry at you. I'm angry with what you've done, you know, so there was always consequences. Interesting. You know? And that was, to, the chastisement was in order to teach me, you know, to teach me and to discipline me, you know, just like God corrects us, you know, he Amen. disciplines those whom he loves. So I think God's judgments are aimed at perfecting us, you know, at teaching us, at allowing us to suffer the consequences of our actions. This is a very, very good point. And I really appreciate how you use parental relationship because that, that was the best way. I, my father was a yeller. My father was a, you know, why can't you do, you know, raising his voice all the time. That was my dad, big time. So early in the children's upbringing, it was like, why can't you, you know, whatever. And then you start reading and you start reading and I'm learning about the character of God. 
And now I learned about the merciful, gracious, long-suffering. You, you give this longer trend of long-suffering, patience, and mercy, and then after that, you then say, okay, as a result of not responding to all of this, now I need to visit the iniquity that has been done and address the individual. And now that means that, yes, it may be a wrath, it may be an anger, but it's redemptive. It is not so much you're getting on my nerves, but it's more so you're not matching up to the potential that God has created you for. And you're allowing these things to get in the way that's hurting not only you, but hurting others. And so the point is very simple as we wrap it up. God says, when you search the scriptures, don't just read them as stories of do's and don'ts. God says, I want you to look at and find my character in every reading. There is not a reading that I ever do in my devotional time that I do not identify the character of God first and then, Lord, how do you want that character quality reflected in me in my situation with this person or that person or some other thing? And you will find that the more that we do this, beloved, it's going to make the Bible come to life. It's going to make the Bible become more real to us and the more we put this in practice now is actually what we don't realize is it's fitting us to eventually be part of a team that's going to give the loud cry. Let me uh, give you this last one here. The end results of knowing God. There's a precious little book, Desire of Ages, page 22, wonderful autobiography of the life of Jesus. And it says here to know God is to love him. And Jesus said, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this is how we'll become part of the patient saints that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and will ultimately give that loud cry that we read about in Revelation 18. And so my hope and my prayer is that whenever we study the word of God, that we take time to get to know him and there are three things that are specific as to what God wants us to know about him. And when I come back the next time that we do this, I want to actually go over these three things. So here's what we're going to go through. Yeah, right here. This is verse 24 of Jeremiah 9 that we did not read earlier. After it said, our boasting, let us boast about this, that we understand and know him. Then it says that I am the Lord, which exercises three things. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. These are three things God wants you to know about him. His loving kindness, make it your point of study. And don't leave the subject until you're convinced. The second thing, judgment. Judgment is actually a beautiful topic in scripture. The problem with many of us is we understand it way too on the surface. God wants to take us to the deeper layer. Look at the subject of judgment on a deeper layer. Study the subject. Finally, righteousness. These are the three things God says, I want you to know this about me. He, I, I like it when God actually says, learn this, learn this about me, learn my loving kindness, learn judgment, and learn righteousness. So Lord willing, when I come back, because next I'll be, Lord willing, I'll be with you obviously tomorrow and next Wednesday for our study group. But next Friday evening and Sabbath, I will be gone. I will be over at Wildwood. It is their 80th year anniversary and they want to do a, an 80 year legacy message. And I'll be speaking for that event. 
So I will be gone next Friday. I'll be gone next uh, Sabbath as well. And then, Lord willing, I'll be back on Sunday. So, um, you know, we'll have something covered for next Friday evening. But in any case, when we come back, we'll go over these things more and still more. Invite your friends. Invite those who know the present truth. Invite those who don't, who do not understand the three angels. And let us learn together these wonderful character qualities of God and start really preparing to give that loud cry and to be part of God's team in the finishing of his work. And the only people that's going to do that are those who know him and who love him and will be the patient saints that will remain faithful to him, even whether it be in life or in death. How many of us want to be counted amongst that number? Amen. Let's pray to that end. Our loving Father, we thank you for everything that we have learned tonight. We thank you for your wonderful words. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to guide us, Lord, and grant us wisdom that exceeds our years and that you'll help us to come to know you as it is our privilege to know you. Continue to make your words plain to our hearts, we pray, and thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.